Welcome to the Heads Up Community Mental Health Podcast. Join our host Joe DeVries with the Fresh Outlook Foundation as she combines science with storytelling to explore a variety of mental health issues with people from all walks of life. Stay tuned. Hey, Joe here. Thanks for joining me, Audrey Heistad, and Dr. Holly Ann Passmore for this eye-opening conversation about the increasing need for children to play outdoors, learn about food, and contribute to more resilient communities. First, a big thank you to our sponsor for this episode, the Social Planning and Research Council of BC. I've known and admired both Audrey and Holly Ann for years, and I'm thrilled to reconnect to talk with them about the proven links between children, nature, and the future of our community's social, cultural, environmental, and economic well-being. Welcome to you both, and thanks for being here. Thanks so much. This is great connecting and great connecting with Audrey again. Thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate being here. Let's jump in first with Audrey, who's farm manager for the Clubhouse Farm in Kelowna, BC. It was created in 2012 as a 12-acre outdoor classroom and working farm to connect children to nature and food. We'll dig into all that in a minute, but first, Audrey, tell us your story. I know you have a master's degree in science. How did your career unfold and bring you to the passion you have for the Clubhouse Farm? My degree is an interdisciplinary sustainability sciences degree. I did it in Stockholm University, but also Stockholm Resilience Center. So I was lucky enough to get to a few post-secondary institutions around Stockholm. And it focused on taking research and applying it to policy. I was really lucky to be able to help with the technical proofreading of the City and Biodiversity Outlook, which basically took information from around the world on cities and how we are pressuring ecosystem services, which we really need if we want to continue living with water and clean air and all those great things. I struggled behind the desk a little bit. So I had the opportunity to come back to Canada and work at the clubhouse farm when it started up. And I was more on the field and it was so excellent to see on a regular basis children getting outside and physically active, but also having the opportunities to connect to the land and have a lot of instances of incidental learning, which was really nice. It helped me, I think, as much as it was helping the children in our community. So tell us about the farm. What do you do? What ages do you serve? We've got a nature preschool out there. So that is a three and four-year-old preschool, and that's a half-day program. Then we've got also Our clubhouse daycare children get to go out there on a regular basis. This time of year, when they go, they also harvest some of the farm produce. And they get to come home with bags of kale and cauliflower and strawberries. But truthfully, the strawberries don't last in the bag. We've got a lot of patty pan squash. And they all feel so proud to take it home. Like they're providing for their families. (laughs) And they chop it up with their family at home and they get to cook it. We also have our school age program come out this time of year. It is school groups. So they come out with their teachers and have a day on the farm. 
Partially, it's learning about food and harvesting, but also it's partially about just getting children outside and active where they have a big space to roam and dirt to play in and insects to collect and all the things that outside offers. So I've learned that the farm is based on two major principles for resilient communities. Tell us about those. The first is the connection to food. There's an outrageous percent of our farmers in Canada who are nearing retirement, and there's really no one to replace them. So we maybe need to look at supporting more local agriculture for a complete community resilience, and also teaching more children and people in general how to grow things and how to harvest and when to harvest and how to cook them and all those things. The second one would be children's general health and well-being because the outdoors offers them so many opportunities for development, social, emotional, physical, everything. We find generally that after being out there, especially in our long programs where children could be out for like two weeks to two months every day, they really do increase their physical capacity. We've seen their general happiness increase and aggression lower. We get children from all sorts of backgrounds. About 25% of our children in general have one or more special needs. It seems that not every child thrives indoors, but every child thrives outdoors in this program. The farm, and I quote you, Audrey, provides incidental learning experiences stealthily disguised as fun. Give us some examples in the different age groups of what fun might look like. I guess an interesting story would be that when this program first started, and I wasn't here then, we had some of our educators who had been in the field for like 30 years had noticed that children had started to lose the ability for free play. So they always waited for the adult to tell them what was happening next. And it was happening far too often. Kids were a little bit more easier to cry and be upset. We even worked with children with childhood depression. They knew that kids need to be out more often. And there was this piece of ALR unused that was just perfect timing. And they started bringing the children out. Children didn't want to get dirty at first. I remember in the early years of it, I had a child who got dirt on their hands and he goes, I need Purell. And I'm like, you're fine, honey. Just wipe it in the grass. <laughs> Part of it is perhaps texture, like just didn't feel quite right because they're so used to never being dirty. But part of it also is that they are so used to being scolded for being dirty. It took a good solid two weeks before the kids were really into the earthworks area, which is the sand and the dirt piles and the pipes that they could reroute and the hoses. When it started, I had a child dig out a big pit and fill it with water. It was an absolute mud pit. And he's in it up to his neck and he's sitting there and he looks so content. And I walk over there and this look of fear comes over his face. He sees me thinking, oh no, I'm going to get in trouble. And I say, you know, that treatment costs $150 at the spa. <laughs> and then I walk away a little bit. He's like, oh, okay, cool. And then other kids see that he's not in trouble. So then they start to do things like that. And we have all these little mud monsters running around. <laughs> it kind of happened for every age group. I have another example of our early years, our very early years, I should say, is our daycare program, which is two and a half to five. And they're told constantly, got to keep your shoes on, got to keep your shoes on. So at the farm, because it is a private piece of land, they're allowed to take their shoes off and run because we know there's no hazards like broken glass and needles and other things like that. 
And we tell them, if you want to take your shoes off, just make sure you don't step on anything pokey or sharp. We watch out for bees and things like that, but it gives the responsibility, the onus on the child. So the first child takes his shoes off and another one comes to me and says, teacher, he's taking his shoes off. And I look at him and I'm like, well, I think that's okay. You know, as long as he feels safe and he's not stepping on anything sharp. And they kind of look at each other for a minute, this group, and they think about it. Oh, he's allowed to do that. And then suddenly all the shoes and socks come off. (laughs) Great stories. Thanks, Audrey. Now let's bring in Dr. Holly Ann Passmore, an assistant professor of psychology at Concordia University of Edmonton. Her primary academic interests and areas of study include nature connectedness and meaning in life, along with positive psychology, existential psychology, and I'm not sure what that is, and well-being. Holly Ann, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. First, tell us about your academic journey from where it started to now being a global expert on how we can connect and engage with everyday nature close to where we live, work, and play. I do just have to say, it is just so wonderful hearing Audrey speak about the Clubhouse Farm. And I had the great privilege to visit that several years ago. There's so much we'll be able to get into and talk about, but I'm so excited to hearing all this again. Couldn't resist throwing that in there because it's so important. I actually started my academic journey pretty old compared to regular, so to speak, students. I did my bachelor's from when I was 41 to 50 because I was also working full time managing a program for the federal government. Then, of course, I went on to do my master's and PhD and a postdoc, and here I am as a faculty and a researcher. My research very much focuses on. Not just nature connectedness, because that's a specific aspect, but the whole relationship with nature and how experiences with everyday nature, as you said, impact our well-being. I really started this academic journey connecting with Dr. Andrew Howell at McCune University, where I did my undergrad, who's now become a really good friend and colleague. We're still doing research together. I was brought on to some work he'd already started. And this was really very early on in the literature. I can't remember if it was 2009, 2010, somewhere around there. Looking at what kinds of well-being indicators are related or correlated or associated with nature connectedness. That in particular, we found well-being, but also aspects of mindfulness. And then it just kind of took off from there. I have a number of students here and at different universities in Canada and the United States, and I work with colleagues in many different countries, looking at that relationship, in particular, China actually have done several studies there of how these everyday kinds of experiences with nature are so important to us and our well-being. Can you share details of your research that led you to this conclusion about the importance of and easy access to nature connectedness? There's a huge body of research, of course, that came before me, clearly showing the benefits of the natural environment to our health and different aspects of our well-being. So all these different theoretical perspectives and rationale and science showing that nature is so good for our well-being. So many people, and even sometimes in papers, I see people get not confused about, but muddy the waters with or equating time in nature with nature connectedness. Those are two very, very different things. Time in nature is just that, time in nature. 
nature connectedness is the quality of your relationship with nature. The best way, I think, for people to really get this, to really understand this, is think of this as any kind of relationship you have with other people. You may spend a lot of time around other people, and that tells me something. But that doesn't tell me anything about the quality of those relationships, about how much you care for those other people, about how you feel towards them, about how connected you feel towards them. You may spend a lot of time with other people, but feel quite lonely or completely not connected with them. Conversely, you may spend a great deal of time alone, but feel hugely connected to the people that you love. Maybe they're just in a different city, but you feel very connected to them. There's a big difference there. And I think especially moving forward in the research, that's a big difference to really consider. The research that I have done, so I've done research looking at that quality, that aspect of nature connectedness. And certainly every piece of research on nature connectedness, this is really solid research, shows a clear correlation, a clear association with many different aspects of well-being, positive emotions, satisfaction with life. And we're actually just in the middle of analyzing data from the Gallup World Poll. This is brand new data, never been looked at before, looking at emotional connection to nature and well-being around the globe in almost every single country. My experimental research has very much focused on applied intervention, how connecting with nature enhances people's well-being. And in particular, I've developed a intervention that I call the Noticing Nature Intervention. And this intervention is really simple, and it is basically just, for the next two weeks, do not change your daily routine. Just simply pay attention to how the nature around you makes you feel. A lot of people sort of look at it as, it's not just about noticing nature, it's noticing how it makes you feel, that experiential, that emotional aspect of it. And in every single study, I have replicated three different studies, several different samples from Canada, United States, and China. And time and time again, we get these huge effect sizes, this big boost to positive affect, to life satisfaction, to a sense of elevation. And elevation isn't just feeling about elevated. It's also feeling profoundly touched, deeply moved feeling that you're connected to something grander than yourself. All of those is our elevation. That's a consistent finding, as well as something that I call transcendent connectedness. So feeling connected to other people, to nature, and just to life in general. So that's very consistent. And what's particularly been interesting about all of those studies, time and time again, and I've also done this in the winter, not just when the weather's green and flowering, is that the people in that condition are not spending more time in nature. It's not just about time in nature. They're not spending more time in nature. They're simply noticing how it makes them feel. I love that. And I have a perfect example about that. And I'm sure my neighbors think I'm crazy, but I love the big garden beside my driveway. In the summer when it's in full bloom, every time I get out of the car, I touch the plants, I talk to them. And it just brings me such joy. And I think that's exactly it. It's interacting with nature. It's being cognizant of the fact that you feel joyful when you do that. I do think that it's incredibly important 
there's a lot of emphasis lately on extra time in nature. And we really need to remember it is a combination. There's a ton of nature around us every day. We need to notice it and be aware of it and how it makes us feel. One thing you mentioned, Holly Ann, is relationship with nature. And I find that fascinating because in the podcasts I've been doing lately, people have been talking about longevity and quality of life being a reflection of social connection. So what you're telling me is that it's not just social connection, it's also connection with nature. Exactly. (laughs) If this was a video cast, you would see my arms flailing around with this. Yes. Actually, there's been some interesting papers looking at nature connectedness or that aspect of connecting with nature as a basic human need. So in psych, we look at three basic human needs or autonomy. We need to feel that we are choosing our lives and our decisions. Competence, which is kind of straightforward. We need to feel somewhat competent, but we have to have a sense of relatedness. And of course, relatedness with other people. We're a hypersocial species. We need to feel connected to other people. At the same time, as you mentioned, and in your previous podcast, that aspect of feeling connected, of relating, of relationship, that is also very much derived from a natural environment. And of course, then there's a whole aspect of our relationship with nature has essentially become broken as adults in much of the world with how we interact with nature or don't. Well, and especially in our urban environments. Oh, yeah. We don't think of it as a relationship, but every time somebody gets in their car, you're having a relationship with the natural environment that is not a healthy one. And I'm not saying that we should all stop driving, but it is something to think about. For me, for example, I'm a bit obsessed with chocolate cake. I love chocolate cake. There's a point to this. (laughs) But I pretty much stopped buying it because every time you go to a store to buy chocolate cake, You're not just buying this cake, you're generally buying this huge plastic container. All those kinds of things are about our relationship with the natural environment. Do I really need chocolate cake that bad that I'm going to do something for this relationship that I have, whether I realize it or not? How is that impacting it? I recently did a podcast with a renowned community planner, and he was talking about the fact that most of us have more relationship with our cars than we do with nature. And I found that incredibly eye-opening. Part of my research, too, really focuses, and I'm starting some work with a woman from Stanford on this, is about mindset and changing the mindset of what people think of as nature. I have a lot of people commenting things like, well, I couldn't connect with nature, certainly in the winter. And I'm like, pretty sure you got a coat. But also, I couldn't get to the park. And of course, nature is in the park, but we so often think of nature as, I'm in Alberta, we have to drive to the mountains. We have to go to the city park, walk out your front door. I would guarantee almost that every single one of the listeners out there can look up and see nature in the sky, would probably be able to see a tree. When you go to the grocery store, you're probably seeing houseplants. You're seeing food. That is nature. And I think we need to expand that to understand that we do have a relationship with it. We just utterly ignore it. Audrey, let's bring you back into the conversation. There's something called biophilia, or our innate attraction to nature. Holly, can you unpackage that for us? Yeah, for sure, Joan. That's kind of funny, actually. So I teach a nature well-being 
upper level fourth year undergraduate class here. And that was the topic yesterday of the class actually was biophilia. Biophilia is a term that originally was proposed by a psychologist named Eric Fromm, but it became much more popularized by actually an entomologist, E.O. Wilson. And essentially, biophilia is like you described it. It's essentially saying that we evolved as a species to want to affiliate with all kinds of life forms, not just human, and to respond with emotional intensity to it. So if you break the words down, bio, of course, is life and philia is love. So it is very much love of life, essentially. And it's also this aspect of respond with emotional intensity. It's not like an instinct, but it is something that's part of our evolutionary heritage. Most of our history as a species has been evolving in a natural environment. And of course, people who responded with emotional intensity to the natural environment were more likely to survive because they were paying attention to what flowers were good, what animals might be attacking them. And it does cover the whole gamut, though. And, and I think that sometimes people, when we're talking about a relationship with nature or biophilia or connecting with nature, is we very much kind of get stuck on all the great parts about nature. But realistically, if you're out lost in a snowstorm at minus 40, you're not particularly having a good time necessarily. If I saw a tarantula suddenly crawling under my door, a snake I'd be okay with. The tarantula would be like, yeah, I'm out of here. We have this part of it because we're part of nature. So that's really where this is at. And that theory grounds a lot of the research in this field because it shows that we do have this inclination to want to connect with nature and respond to it. Audrey, do you see that innate urge among the children at the farm? Absolutely. And I feel like anyone who has small children in their life would see it. But you also see on the other side of the scale, biophobias start to develop. And when we have older children versus our younger children, we have examples of times where the biophobia is more easily overcome in the younger age groups. And I wonder if maybe it's just because it's a learned behavior. I'll give you some examples. I had a preschool group come out for their first visit and the group of children, three to four-year-olds, got off the bus, mostly four-year-olds. And they kind of stayed together in one big group and just looked around. And there's a lot of freedom at the farm because there's our early learning garden, which is fenced in, which is a large space. And then beyond that, there's another large fence. And beyond that is another one because it's the farm classroom. So there's a lot of freedom given to these children in this natural space. But sometimes that freedom can be a little overwhelming. (laughs) We had these children start to explore the space and They got a little bit closer to the loose parts area and on one of the shelves was a daddy long legs, like a huntsman spider. They screamed and they bunched together. (laughs) I went over there and I picked it up in my hand and I said, oh, it's okay. It's a spider. It's a daddy long legs spider. And this one little boy goes, be careful. It could hurt you. (laughs) And I said, well, some spiders can hurt you, but this one, I really know it because it's got this little round body and these long legs. I can see that this one is one of the ones that won't hurt me. So they started to come over and look at it in my hand a little bit. And eventually one little child said that they wanted to hold it. So I said, okay, put your hand out. So I put the spider in their hand and immediately they kind of shook their hand and it dropped. It was just a reaction. Whoops. Okay. We'll just pick them up gently. 
and try again if anyone wants to hold the spider. So eventually other children started and is crawling on our arms and our hands. And, and then eventually the spider looked a little tired. So I said, you know what? Maybe it's time that we find a home for this spider. So those children helped me for about 20, 30 minutes get sticks and leaves. They fully decided they were building this beautiful spider home. And they all collected these sticks and leaves and twigs and anything they could find to make this spider mansion in the corner of the garden. <laughs> and when it was complete, we brought the spider over and introduced it to its new home. The next time I had that group, there were significantly less fearful over the insects. And they would go and look at them. And if we said that they were safe insects and they could pick them up and they could hold them, make a little house for them. And it kind of overcame that original fear. I'm sure that's not uncommon. I think everyone who has small children probably has a similar story. Another story about empathy, often we have found a dead animal on the property. We have a very large property. The children will let one of the staff know that they found this dead animal. It's an instance. They want to let them know. It was spring break, and I had a little boy. I think he was in grade four at the time, and he's one of those children who typically is always getting in trouble in school. You need to sit down. You need to come away from there. You need to slow down. Don't climb that. Constantly getting this negative feedback. And when you're small, the negative feedback starts to develop your identity. So it's such a great thing that he can come out to this program once in a while because he has a little bit more freedom. He was wandering around on the farm. And earlier I had done the security check and I found a dead hawk, but I opted to leave it because when I was a kid, that's the kind of thing that would, I would be super interested in. And so he found it. And he comes running over and says, there's a dead bird over here. And usually children will tell on something to the educator and then clear the way between the thing and the educator. So the educator has a beeline toward it. <laughs> so I went right over there and they kind of expected me to be like, everyone go away. Like, I need to deal with this. And I was like, oh, well, what do you think it is? What do you think happened to it? And we asked a couple questions there and I said, okay. And I went off to do the work where I work just a little bit of a distance away from them where I'm still supervising and with an earshot, but to their perspective, I'm not really up in their play and work and they have a little bit more freedom. This little boy and a couple others, they were looking at it for a while and he decided that it needed a burial. So he organized a couple of children to get shovels and buckets and he got a Sharpie and other children got some nice stones for markers. Other children were tasked with getting the wildflowers or whatever was available at the time of year. <laughs> they dug this hole and they buried it and they made this nice little grave site. And then when it was done, I came over there with another educator and we looked at it for a while and I said, would you like to say a few words? And he said, no, you do it. And I said, okay, well, dear hawk. And he goes, no, no, I'll do it. And I'm like, okay, you do it. <laughs> so he goes, dear hawk, thank you for keeping the mice out of our houses. And me and the other educator looked at each other real quick. <laughs> but all those other children, hands folded, eyes down, and even though it was play, it was a truly solemn moment for those children. And they had their final goodbyes and they went off to play. The next day when I parked the bus and they went running down there to check on their gravesite, a coyote had dug it up in the night and eaten it. And at first the children were really upset that it didn't have any respect for the dead. But I told them, you know, it's probably a good thing that the coyote dug that up and ate it because, you know, coyotes have to eat too. And maybe it saved another bird. Coyotes are scavengers. And we started talking about predators and prey and scavengers and all these other different things that come along with it, the cycles of life and death. And I was thinking if I got rid of that hawk that morning, all of this would be lost. It's almost like natural opportunities 
to develop these kind of relationships happen outside. I just love this. My arms are really flailing around here. I just absolutely love listening to you, Audrey, and listening to these stories. All of this just so aligns. And the first thing that I was thinking of, and this was not mine, actually, this came from some, I can't remember the name of the book. It might have been a Richard Louvre book, but it was, we always tell our children to be careful. We always say, be careful, be careful, rather than and what Audrey does and what is so much different is be aware. It's not, oh, be careful, you're going to hurt, but it's be aware. And that's an entirely different mindset for the natural world, for everything around you is to be aware. I love that. I think that's an incredibly different way of interacting with one's environment, whether that's natural or not. And then the other aspect is about death and these learning opportunities. How could you possibly teach a child that? Like, you're really going to bring a photo of a dead hawk into a kindergarten? That's not going to go over very well. I've looked at some theory, and I proposed this theory paper, which brings the existential part into it existential concerns or existential anxieties or philosophy are really just these issues that just by virtue of being human beings, we think about just by existing. We think about we want to be happy. We want to have meaning in our lives. We want to know who we are. And of course, we want freedom to choose our lives. But a huge one is we all have concerns over the fact of mortality. We're all mortal. Everything around us that we know that is living is mortal. But nature has this way of connecting us to something bigger, and it really helps to mitigate or soothe those existential anxieties. And just like Audrey was talking about, seeing that, especially with the coyote then coming, this is part of life, and we need to recognize that, and we need to have respect for it. And we need to understand that we're connected to this greater whole. And I think that's just such an incredible example. And those children will never forget that. And they will learn that at a deep, deep level that you can't teach in a classroom. And that's a lot harder to teach when children are 10, 12, 15 adults. So I just loved those stories. Funny thing about that story is that The same kind of pattern happens every time if the children found a dead mouse or a dead snake. The same pattern behavior always emerges. Originally fear and then interest and then the sticks come out and they start poking at it. And then one of the children usually kind of decide, well, what should we do? It all happens with us, the adults, stepped away from them because our whole idea is that we give them the space to do it. And so often that is the same pattern that emerges. So it's a process, and it's the same process that kids use to learn about so many things in life. Pollyann, what were you saying earlier? You had two points, and the first one was a little bit about observation, these processes that just kind of happen outside naturally develops observation and maybe risk assessment skills. Yeah, that be aware aspect rather than be careful, be aware. I just think that you do that. You're just the epitome of that. And you and the other people at the farm there interact with the children. And that's a very different way than our society as a whole tends to deal with children and with our approach to life. And about that, we found it was very hard 
for ourselves, our educators, our team to relearn that because so often we are immediately thinking, oh my gosh, our licensing we have to deal with. We are worried about children getting hurt constantly. How do we manage this risk while still allowing the children to take moderate amounts of risk in their play? Over the years, we had really developed policies and procedures to train our staff and ourselves, sometimes even retrain ourselves who have been there from the beginning to allow that flexibility and risk-taking in their play. Every year we do a professional development period. That's something that often comes up so that we can reiterate how important it is to not say, be careful, don't do that, but just ask them, how are you feeling? Are you feeling safe here? If they're climbing a tree, is this branch feeling strong enough to support your weight? And is your foot solid there? You don't feel any slipping? Just support them guide them, spot them almost like you would at a gym (laughs) in order for them to take those next steps. I think that's so important. It's an entirely different way of interacting. I find it really interesting that when we interact with children, even just in movies or shows or whatever, because we're becoming so disconnected from the natural world and children are spending less and less time outside and in nature, that it's become the great unknown. And this scary place, this whole thing of helicopter parenting and extending this to outdoor play, whereas not to the same level where adults or parents say, be careful, be careful, be careful, when kids are playing inside. They don't walk by a microwave and we don't all yell, oh my God, be careful. But we go outside and they walk by something that's completely innocuous and it's like suddenly, be careful. I guess part of it is the unknown of it all. And because we are so disconnected, it is unknown. I'll give you another example. In the Okanagan, like in many places in our world, we have tick season. Over the years that we have done our TikToks to tell them all about what you're looking for and how to deal with it if you have a tick on you, it doesn't stay so scary because it is more familiar. And we can get ticks off before they bite you. And if they bite you, how do we reduce your risk of getting any kind of disease? How do we identify that tick so we know it's not a line carrier? Things like that. I had a group come and they play a little bit. Then they come and sit down and listen to information about ticks. It's the TikTok. (laughs) And one of the little girls is this kindergarten grade one split. And she puts her head up. She goes, oh, we know what ticks are. We have them at our school in the trees. So we're not allowed to play in the trees. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Because the risk of ticks is actually less than the risk of a sedentary lifestyle. So how do we balance our hazards with allowing our children to have that necessary risk? I have to say, I'm one of the people that had to learn about ticks because I just didn't want to even be near them. But now I am able to spot them so easily and pick them up and put them in a baggie before they even get on anybody. They don't freak me out anymore. I'm more observant to them. So I'm interested to know about the link between the physical and mental health of people who have a daily connection with nature. Pollyanne, can you start us off with that one? There's a huge body of solid, replicated, consistent findings and research showing that playing with dirt is a really good thing. Part of the reason why so many more kids have asthma now is because everything's sterilized. The biome in the natural environment is really important to us. There's good research showing that people who live within five or 10 kilometers of city parks 
are physically healthier because you're exposed to those different germs. And that connects to mental health on a physical level. We do know there's a lot of good research coming out with this aspect of the biome around you and your mental health through a physical link. And then on a mental well-being aspect, we certainly know there's correlational research with people who feel connected to nature tend to have higher levels of well-being, higher levels of meaning in life. And well-being is in positive emotions, life satisfaction, a range of different aspects of well-being. We know that nature connection tends to lead people to spend more time in nature. And most definitely, we see a link with people who spend more time in nature. There's been a number of studies showing that they have higher levels of many indicators of well-being. And my research doesn't show it's not about time in nature. It's about noticing the nature around you. It's a statistical measure, but it's how big of a change in well-being. In my research, in my colleagues' research, looking at noticing how it makes you feel, the effect sizes are either mid-range to the very top. They are robust effect sizes. You are getting a lot, this huge boost to your well-being that seems to stick around as well. We need more research on the follow-ups, but enormous number of connections and research to back that up, this link between spending time in nature on both physical and many aspects of mental health, mental well-being. Audrey, what do you see at the farm regarding the link between nature and child mental health? I guess I would firstly talk about friendships. I've got a couple of educators that have shared stories about how they had children in their classrooms that just didn't jive. They just, for some reason, had trouble making friendships with each other. So often outdoors with the loose parts, activities and gardening activities and water play and mud play and all these things, they would give children an opportunity to connect. And those relationships and friendships would actually be taken back into the classroom. So that's super interesting. Another thing is for educators that support in the classroom or work specifically with children with special needs, a few different people had mentioned to me, you go into a classroom and you can kind of immediately pick out which are the children that are going to need some support, which ones need help. Out on the farm, you can't tell. It's this level playing field for children of all different abilities. For me, I found that after a program outside, whether it be two weeks or two months, these children would start to play together, like in groups of cousins. It's like almost one giant grandma's house. And all these children would play this deep, imaginative game with a role for every child of every ability. That's so beautiful, Audrey. When you're speaking about the social relationships, I forgot to mention, but it reminded me, there's some really interesting research that has shown that when people spend time in nature, this is with adults, but even just a very short period of time in nature, people are more pro-social. They will help a stranger more often, more readily, and more quickly. They're more likely to. People tend to be more generous when they are in nature or when they've recently spent time in nature. And it's one of the reasons why I switched my university class here for nature and well-being. Three of the classes across the semester are experiential ones. And I used to put the first one as a walk in nature where we notice it and different aspects. I used to put that more towards the middle of the semester, but this semester I did that almost right away, maybe the third class. 
it's so noticeable because every student is reflected on that impact for them. But also I can see it in the classroom because usually the class discussions are really pretty stilted the first week. And yesterday I was way more in a position of, oh my God, I don't know how to shut these people up. This is great. <laughs> like Audrey was saying with those examples, you have a different relationship with people that carries over afterwards. You're more willing to accept things and you tend to be more generous. You can just be who you are, that level playing field. Audrey, you mentioned briefly earlier about having children with mental health challenges or developmental challenges. How does your program benefit the mental health of children in those categories? I can give you a quick story. We have one little boy. We've had this little boy for two years and he has some aggression problems and other challenges that he's working through. We're not allowed dogs on our farm because of our insurance requirements, but we do happen to have our classroom support chickens. And so this little boy has absolutely taken to these chickens. And part of his routine would be He's the one who's allowed to come and feed them and make sure they have their water and bring the chicken pail and collect the eggs and things like that. He absolutely thrives off it. And you can see this little boy who has been in trouble countless times for hitting somebody be the most gentle person to these tiny, delicate birds. That is something we see quite a bit, too, is that it almost is an exercise in empathy, perhaps. So that is super cool. And also... It's one of the things that if he's really not behaving one day, he'd be like, you know what? If you're not being gentle, I cannot let you come and take care of the chickens because they need someone who is gentle. So immediately he has a natural consequence and he will totally rise to that expectation. <laughs> Pollyann, can we predict children's connection with nature? And if so, when is the best time to intervene? Miles Richardson from the UK University of Derby and I did a paper, this is published a year or two ago, I guess, looking at what predicts children's nature connectedness. And the biggest predictor of children's nature connectedness is their parents' nature connectedness. And I think that's a really important aspect to remember that we can't just target children. We need to target the adults in their lives. Children learn by observation. It's like Audrey was talking about if an adult is screaming that there's a spider, well, every kid is going to run around screaming at that spider as well. I think that's a vital aspect to remember that we also need to take care of our own as adults, and particularly if you're working with children, their nature connectedness. And I think the intervene is an interesting one, or just the word is interesting, because I think of more of it as how do we best connect children with nature? Intervening is generally something you place in a process that's going to stop something, where I think that really this is just about how can we connect children to nature early, and the earlier the better. Even as babies, they're learning that. You take them out in the weather. You yourself are connected. You let them feel and touch aspects of nature and play. And that's a really important aspect because we know that as adults in personality formation, that our early experiences with the natural world are hugely important and impactful and shape who we are as individuals. Most environmentalists would have had very early experiences with the natural environment. 
It would be really interesting, Audrey, to follow all these children up that are so blessed to be part of your program, like truly blessed, to see what percentage of them end up going into careers that have an environmental focus. Because I would suggest that there's a huge percentage greater than other children. I was thinking a neat study in the more short term would just be to get Fitbits for like 40 kids who are out here on a regular basis, especially over the summer period, and have it two months of data for the school season and two months of data for the summer outdoor program and just see the distance they cross in a day. Maybe correlate that with behavior and happiness. Exactly. We spoke about that before and I think got sidetracked from doing that. So we should really jump on that research bandwagon again. The other aspect I think that's really important to remember is this aspect of connecting kids early. So the biggest, pretty much bar none, and there's pretty solid research around this, um, predictor of pro-environmental behavior is your level of nature connectedness. It's not about knowledge. It's not about pumping kids, or adults for that matter, full of knowledge about the natural world. Of course, that's important. Of course, we need to understand the relationship, how the world works. We need to understand our impact on the natural environment. You're going to care more for an individual who you are close with, who you have a deep and complex relationship with and caring relationship. You're going to do more to protect their health than you are the person that you see in the street. You're probably still going to help the person on the street, but it's not the same. And pro-environmental behavior is no different. It's forming that connection to nature really early. And that leads to wanting to protect nature, wanting to have a positive relationship with the natural environment, and then introducing the aspect of caring. Exactly the way you're doing it at the farm, really. I know I keep saying that, but it's so important, that program. Audrey, we've talked a lot about nature connectedness, but I'd love you to elaborate on the topic of food and how that is integrated into the bigger picture. Since we're a farm, our produce is harvested. And although some is sold to maintain our program, the majority of it comes back to feed our kids. We have so much come off just a few acres of land. We can get so much produce. It's used back in our licensed kitchen to make soups and baked goods, all sorts of things for our children on the daily basis. Typically, all our ancestors all around the world would have eaten a very varied and seasonal diet. And this day and age, the majority of what we eat is the 20 same things from the grocery store all the time. (laughs) There are so many things in our natural environment that are edible that we never even really consider. So not only do we have our typical farm produce, we also do a lot of wild harvesting. So there's a lot of nettle and there's lamb's quarters, even wild amaranth, purslane, and all these natural foods that start growing earlier than what we grow ourselves and also last later into the season. Learning about that stuff and starting to get a more varied diet is really beneficial, but connecting kids to food is one of our biggest goals. We had a group of, I think it was grade one, two splits. And they came out to the back garden and there were rows of raspberry bushes. And one of the children said, who put raspberries on all these bushes? Why would you waste your time and all these perfectly good raspberries? And one of our teachers was like, that's where they grow. That's where you grow raspberries. Imagine being in a grade one, two split and literally not knowing where food comes from. A woman in my master's class did her thesis on where children think food comes from. 
and the results are equally hilarious as they are terrifying because we are so separated from every aspect of production. I had another example of a mixed group up to grade four and we were out on our walk in the field and I pulled a carrot out of the ground and their response was, ew, like grossed <laughs> out. Can you imagine? I was like, no, it's a fresh carrot. Smell it. It smells amazing. And they went and they were like, ew, they wouldn't smell it. And one of my brave kids smelled it and he was like, wow, like a fresh carrot out of the ground smells so good. And then other children tried and they smelled this carrot and it smelled so nice. And I dusted it off and I ate it and they were so grossed out. <laughs> I was like, that's a fresh carrot. It's delicious. And then my brave kid did the same thing. And then all the kids, all their carrots were gone. <laughs> this is where food comes from. It comes from the earth and it is absolutely pivotal that we start building connections with it because we need it to survive. And it would seem to me that that would encourage them to learn about cooking with natural, locally grown foods and maybe encouraging their parents to start down that road. Yeah, maybe. I had one little girl one summer who helped me almost the entire summer, every chance she got, because there's a lot of free playtime, but there's other activities happening that they can be a part of if they wish. And so she helped me almost all that summer with the market. And she saw like us put these things on the shelves and they would be sold and how much money we would get back for them. And so she equated it to a monetary value for this squash. And I sent her home with some produce and she was like, oh, I can't pay for this. I'm like, no, you absolutely earned it. You get to take this home. And she was done that year because she was an older child. It was her last year of being in our school age program. And she came back in the fall. She made her dad drive her back so she could give me this little wrapped up gift and it was all the seeds that she had saved from the produce <laughs> so that we could grow it again next year. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, it is so lovely. And to think we have a fair amount of children who truly have no idea where food comes from when they come to our program, but also have not tried a lot of the foods that we grow. So at first, they're really just closed off to the idea of trying new things. But when they see their peers trying them and they've grown them, they've been a part of harvesting them or even from the beginning when we plant them, they're far more likely to try them. And I'm sure there's research backing up how when children are a part of growing their food, they are more likely to eat a varied and healthy plant-based diet. So as you alluded to in your stories, these kids are learning about the physical, emotional, social environmental and economic impacts and benefits of living this way. Yeah, economic. One year, our neighbors at the farm would always order eggs. I remember ringing the bell one summer and asking if anyone wanted to help me deliver eggs. So I had 16 volunteers to deliver two dozen eggs. <laughs> I split the eggs up in a couple containers because a lot of them wanted to carry them for a while. We had to take turns as we did our walk. We got to their door. And we handed the eggs over and the children were absolutely thrilled that we got to deliver eggs, first of all. And our neighbors were absolutely thrilled that they had this convoy of children who were delivering their eggs. And they handed me $10 for two dozen. And the children at first, like I saw on their faces, they were kind of shocked. Like, we're not doing this just out of the goodness of our hearts. We actually get money for this. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, a bag of feed costs $15. And for our chickens, it'll last two weeks. So Every two weeks, we have to spend $15 on their bags. And it became this math thing. And so some of the children were working it out and thinking, how do I get chickens at home? Because obviously, <laughs> <laughs> this is a good economic motivation. 
little entrepreneurs at heart, but it's really so multifaceted. And if you wanted to just discuss all these topics, it would be so complex. But if you're just living it and just having an opportunity to come when you want to be a part of something, it is so much easier to learn that way. Okay, so moving on to a different topic now. Pollyanne, I know you have a keen interest in eco-anxiety. How would you define that and who's most at risk? Yeah, I have really expanded my research program to look at this concept of eco-anxiety. And we just have a paper under review right now of five different studies we've been running since about 2019 here and in the UK. So eco-anxiety is a really interesting concept because it's something relatively new. How I define it, and in our research, how we define it, is really this underlying current of worry and possibly anxiety, doom even perhaps, but about the increasing degradation of our natural environment and the looming environmental crises. Well, it's not looming. We're in the midst of it. It's very clear. It's very much right here. There's a lot of terms being bandied around with eco-anxiety, eco-concern, eco-grief. I think it's important to understand that this is a continuum. First of all, even before the fact that it's a continuum, this is a normal, healthy response. It is not a normal, healthy response to be in the middle of a war, for example, and not be worried about it, not feel any kind of anxiety or have that kind of always in the back of your mind. Same with the reaction to what's going on with our natural environment. So this is a really healthy, normal response. Certainly, eco-anxiety and nature connectedness seem to be connected, which makes sense. The more you care about something, the more you're concerned about that relationship and about that other individual or the other aspect as is nature when it is hurt. So that makes sense, that relationship. We know that eco-anxiety can be a bit of a continuum. So certainly, there can be very severe cases of it where it's paralyzing to people. And that's not the kind of eco-anxiety that is generally felt. Almost all children, I would suggest, and certainly university students, are feeling this because they're learning about this every single day. You can't not know that the planet is in pretty serious trouble here. We hear about this all the time. So this is something that's affecting everybody. That's a good thing. That's actually a good thing for people to feel that sense of eco-concern and eco-anxiety because low to moderate levels are actually correlated with higher levels of pro-environmental behavior. It's only when you get really, really severe paralyzing levels of it, just like with anything, then you're paralyzed. You don't do anything. So severe levels of this are actually related to lower levels of pro-environmental well-being. Audrey, do you see eco-anxiety among the children that you deal with? And if so, does it manifest differently in different age groups? I can't really think of any examples where I can specifically speak to that. I have my own eco-anxiety for sure. And I think that is one of the big things that led me to work here in this field. I can tell you I have some days where I'm just so oh man, what is the hope we have? What is the point? And then I'll have this little child come up to me, look at this bug I found. And I'm like, oh my God, it's amazing. What do you want to do with it? You're like, I'm going to make it at home. Okay, let's do it. And then the whole day just shifts like through this 
childhood lens um, and fortunate enough to have opportunities to overcome eco-anxiety. Because it's all about action. You take your concerns, your fears, your anxiety and flip it to identify what you can do to be part of the solution. Yeah, it's pretty great to have. I had a day where we're walking across the field and I had a little child go, oh, I found a piece of garbage. Like, Okay, well, that's really great. Thank you so much. Let's make sure this gets in the garbage can. Or can we recycle it because it's clear plastic or something like that? It gives me more hope for the future to see all these children engage on a regular basis with our farm, our natural environment. And that's so important dealing with. I remember I had an interviewer ask me once, how can we cope with or get rid of, essentially? We don't get rid of eco-anxiety. We're never going to, and we don't want to. This is going to be with us for many years with an increasing number of people, and you can certainly see the data on that. Definitely one of the suggestions that is being pulled from this research for coping with eco-anxiety, as you were saying, Joe, is, well, first of all, it's to talk about it. A lot of people won't actually talk about this is how I feel, or they're afraid to talk about it with their loved ones or with their children because they don't want to upset them. You know what? Your kids are learning this at school. Your kids are learning about these kinds of issues. They already know this. They're already thinking and hearing this. And the second way is exactly what you were both speaking about is doing something. What can you do? And the third way that often gets ignored is actually increasing your connection to nature. Naomi Klein's an environmentalist, and she did this interview a few years ago on CBC's Tapestry with, with Mary Hines. She said, I don't use the word hope for the environment. That's a whole other conversation. But what she did say, and I loved how she worded it, but one of the ways, a day-to-day way of coping with eco-anxiety and managing it so that you're not being paralyzed by it and not then doing nothing She said, it is vitally important to connect with the natural world in ways that are not all about peril. And I think that was such a beautiful example of what Audrey was saying of these children, and as as adults, we can certainly do this as well on a daily basis, is connecting with the beauty of nature that is still there, that's not about peril, that's just about loving this individual aspect of nature. So that's a really important aspect of it as well. With climate change and the growing incidence of wildfires, floods, and heat waves has come increasing eco-anxiety and particularly among children and youth. We just uploaded an article to our Heads Up e-zine about climate grief written by a grade 12 student in Alberta and it's well worth the read. It's very well done and really shows his concern and his peers' concerns about not only what's happening, but how they can contribute to positive change. Holly Ann, you've been connected with the Clubhouse Farm in different ways for many years. Can you tell us from your perspective as an academic and a researcher why it's working? I think that a large part of the reason why it's working, aside from the obvious that it is all based in the natural environment, a huge part of that is the way the Clubhouse Farm and Audrey and all of the educators and the whole team there base what they're doing in many different disciplines, in environmental science, in education, in psychological principles, in education principles. This isn't a hastily thrown together program or a program that is only looking at from the perspective of one discipline. 
that's an enormous benefit and an enormous reason of why it's working. And there's also the aspect of how every aspect of the way the farm works is integrated and well thought out. So it's not just one aspect of interacting with the environment. It's the entire way that this unfolds and the aspect of not being careful, but being aware and the play. And I had the great privilege to spend time out there. That was just an incredible opportunity to notice that the whole aspect of these kids, they're always safe. It's not like they're just let loose to run wild with no supervision, but they're free to play. There's so many aspects of why this is working. It's really hard to answer that question. (laughs) Audrey, are other schools and or the local school district interested in what you're doing and how well it's working? Well, we have a lot of teachers from local school districts come out. I get so much hope for the future based on their optimism and their engagement to connect their children to the natural environment and come out when they have opportunities to do so. But also we have good discussions while we're out there because the children get so engrossed in their activities when they're out on the land that it gives adults a chance to discuss it. And we've had teachers who have started to implement their own outdoor classrooms at their schools, which is ideal because we're only one little outdoor program and we can't accommodate everyone that wants to come out. So really, this has to be just an example of it, and it needs to be recreated in many other places. Fun fact, I think 51% of the agricultural land reserve in the Okanagan is currently not used for farming. So I imagine that this kind of program could happen all over the Okanagan, and every school could have a farm that goes back to feed their kids there. It's hard work, and the biggest part of our program is all the work that our team has done on professional development in the whole side of how to do it, how to get outside, and how teaching is different in this kind of outdoor classroom. I'd just like to share quickly a project that the Fresh Outlook Foundation is working on now with School District 22 in Vernon, BC, and the City of Vernon. It's called Climate Action Ripple Effect, or CARE for short. We're in our second semester now, but last semester, we had more than 120 students create 32 hands-on, on-the-ground projects in support of the City of Vernon's Climate Action Goals and UN Sustainable Development Goals. And these projects ranged from beekeeping and mason bee houses to solar-powered robots, handmade windmills, hydroponics. It was just astounding and so inspiring to see these grade 11 students come up with these ideas, do the research, build their projects, and then display them at the wrap-up summit at the end of the semester. The positive impacts to teachers, students, and the community were so strong that the school district and the city stepped up and wanted to do it in a bigger, better, and more powerful way. So we're in round two now of that. Wow. That's great. Very exciting. Okay, last question for each of you. Audrey, if you could envision education 20 years from now... How would all schools be benefiting from connecting their students 
with nature on a daily basis. I would absolutely love to see more outdoor education. And I think it's coming because of all the research showing how beneficial it is. But then there's also the how to do it that we are starting to read more about and see more on a regular basis. I read an article on CBC this morning about this young man who has been diagnosed on the spectrum and with ADHD. He doesn't do well in school. So he involves himself. His parents support him as well. He has a passion for these lizards in Mexico. And so he has spent two years now, I think, collecting bottles and cans, and he cashes them in and sends the money to the research center in Mexico that is studying these lizards who are on the extinction list. Just so exciting about how your program can help build these kinds of passions and help kids learn to be who they are in ways that contribute. Pollyanne, what do you see in your crystal ball? Because I'm a professor at a university, I speak to that from a university perspective. And one of the things I would really love to see, hopefully sooner than 20 years, but definitely in 20 years, is getting rid of, particularly when new buildings are being built, this thing of having lecture halls with no windows is beyond my understanding of how we can have all this data on the benefits of natural light to learning, to creativity, to reducing skipped classes, and all this kind of research and data showing this, and we still build buildings and classrooms, lecture halls with no windows. That, to me, is just a no-brainer that I hope comes about. I'd like to see more access to living walls, more access to indoor plants in buildings where there aren't windows. We're not going to tear down every building. Those kinds of ways of integrating nature into a building, into an environment. More attention paid to places outdoors on campus where students can go and just be in nature, where students can go and study more than just, well, here's a bench. That's a great start. But here's a place that's covered. Here's an outdoor classroom that's covered, that's got a PowerPoint, that's got technology, which is really easy to do, relatively speaking. And I would love to see more of that, more of gardens, similar to what the Clubhouse Farm is doing and container gardening in the city. That's going to help students who need food. That's going to help everybody. So those are the kinds of aspects I would like to see instituted at a post-secondary education 20 years from now. So that's a wrap. Thank you both so much for sharing your incredible passions, insights, and ideas about how to build the next generation of truly engaged and committed environmentalists who will help build all aspects of resilience in our communities. I love this conversation. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Joe, for having us on. And it was really nice to talk to you. And Holly Ann, thank you so much for talking with us today, too. Thanks, Joanne, for the invitation and great to reconnect with you, Audrey. To learn more about Audrey and Holly Ann's work, visit freshoutlookfoundation.org podcasts. There you'll find contact info, complete bios, a list of resource links, and a complete transcript. Another big thank you again to our sponsor for this episode, the Social Planning and Research Council of BC. 
And thanks to you as well for hanging out with us. You are very much appreciated. Please visit our website to sign up for our monthly e-newsletter, which will alert you to new episodes of the podcast and other programming. And for podcast information as it drops, follow us on Facebook at Fresh Outlook Foundation and Twitter at Fresh Outlook. In closing, be well and let's connect again soon. Mm -hmm.